I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Seriously, the New Statesman podcast that takes pop culture seriously. I'm Caroline Crampton. And I'm Anna Leskovich. This week we're talking about the Steven Spielberg film The Post and the second series of Search Party. We've also watched the TV version of She's Gotta Have It for the first time, so we'll be talking about how that went later in the show. Hello. Hello. Welcome back to another episode of seriously how are you caroline i'm okay i am a little bit damp because i just had to collect my dog from where he's been staying for the last couple of days and they gave him a bath and he was completely soggy but otherwise i'm good do the listeners know about your dog morris i think we mentioned him when like right when i was first getting him but i haven't maybe talked about him since caroline got a dog before christmas called morris and he looks like an old man and is very very playful and adorable yes he is extremely excited at the moment to be back home and yes was very very damp and also affectionate which is maybe not a great combination for my clothes well i have just got back from brighton where i spent the weekend and being obviously the highbrow cultured person that i am i you know what i didn't do the art gallery i didn't do the museum i didn't you know do any of the highbrow culture things that brighton has to offer but i did engage in some glow in the dark dinosaur themed mini golf so <laughs> what more could you really <laughs> that ask sounds for? great so right opposite where my office is in liverpool is this thing called ghetto golf which that sounds absolutely like- bizarre <laughs> It, yeah, I've never been in, but it looks completely bizarre and I really want to go with someone. <laughs> okay, I'm up for it. Any sort of novelty themed. I have done dinosaur golf before, but not glow in the dark, crucially. But any sort of novelty mini golf is, I'm I'm here for it. Are you actually good? Oh, no. Just oh, no. no. It's no, like bowling. I'm really bad at bowling, but I get into the kind of vibes of it. So I've like spent, I like impulse bought like a bowling theme like a bowling shirt you know like when men do proper bowling <laughs> yeah, yeah. i bought like a bowling shirt from some instagram seller for like 90 quid 90 dollars or something i know personalized with my name embroidered on it because because <laughs> 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 i just like love i just get into the kind of like petra collins photography shoot vibes of any sort of like novelty <laughs> sport like that and it still hasn't arrived and i ordered it in uh, like october so that's gone really well for me <laughs> Yeah, ordering stuff off Instagram is the worst. I mean, why I've done did it I once. do that? I think I was maybe drunk or tired. Or I just don't know why I did that. That was a crazy move. <laughs> um, but yeah. Do I, you have a special dinosaur golf outfit? I don't. I actually wore all black, which is like a stupid idea for a glow in the... I mean, I always wear all black, so that's the problem. But 
for a, you want to be wearing like white or something because of the like neon mm. vibes in there but i did get a lot of good pics for the gram so you know job done <laughs> so one thing we need to tell you before we kick off today's episode is you've only got one more week to read our seriously book club book the innocent wife by amy lloyd because next week is our special book club episode with amy and lots of chat about the book if you are still maybe thinking you want to read it but haven't got round to it, we've got a little extract from the audiobook that we're going to put at the end of this episode. So after the theme tune and stuff, stay listening and you can hear, I think it's a four minute clip from the audiobook. And if you are interested, I'll put the link to where you could get the audiobook maybe in the show notes. So if that's a better option for you to listen on your commute, you can still join in that way. Wicked. Thanks, Caroline. You've done a great job of organising this book club and I, for one, am hyped. I've seen lots of people in our mentions on Twitter like telling each other that they've got to read this book because the book club is happening and that makes me really happy. Oh, yay. Oh, the other thing I wanted to say, actually, I'm completely stealing this idea from other more famous podcasts but if you would like to actually send us a clip of you talking about the book for us to include in the show that would be amazing like just if you're sitting somewhere in a quiet room use the voice memo app on your phone and like record two minutes of you saying what you think of it rather than email some of you have emailed and tweeted which is also great and we'll use that but if you want to actually record yourself saying it and then email it to seriouslypod at gmail.com we could actually have you talking and that would be amazing oh that would be so fun please do that somebody amazing okay so should we roll on with this week's episode before we get too excited about next week's yes let's do it the first thing we're going to talk about this week is the post which is a historical film directed by steven spielberg and it tells the story of how journalists from the washington post came to publish the pentagon papers in the early 1970s it stars Meryl Streep as the newspaper's publisher, Catherine Graham, and Tom Hanks as the editor, Ben Bradley. It's a very Spielberg film, I think it would be mm-hmm. fair to say, in that it's kind of like cheesy and fun. And there's, you know, swelling orchestra and lots of sentimental moments and lots of kind of tense, dramatic moments. They've really, really carved out a narrative with lots of peaks and troughs from, the, from this Pentagon Papers story. Yeah, so did you know the story of this before you watched the film? I didn't really. No, no, not at all. (laughs) I wish I could pretend to like be like, yeah, I mean, obviously I had read the original reportage, but no. No, me neither. But quick recap for those of you who don't. It's basically all about the Vietnam War. It's sort of, actually to me, it felt a lot like the way the UK press covered the various like Iraq war fallout Mm. reports and stuff like that, that, you know, the Vietnam War been going on for a really long time by the early 70s when this film is set. Loads and loads of Americans have died. And essentially, there is this secret report that says, yeah, it's all been a waste of time. We were never going to win. We've just sent loads of people over there to their deaths to save face, essentially, because America can't be seen to lose. And this report gets leaked and the journalists then, you know, have to do their jobs in difficult circumstances to get it published. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think one thing that is great about this film is that if you are someone who doesn't know about this and has like no grasp on the politics behind it and has no grasp on how journalism works or anything at all it is extremely accessible (laughs) like they do Mm, lots of you could criticize it for being a bit broad maybe but like for example the opening is like this guy being like 
you're telling me that the war effort was doomed from the start and we're losing and it's terrible and all these men are dying for no reason. And then he goes out and it's like, the war effort is going extremely well. We're very confident. <laughs> and so it really gives you these, like the contrast of like what's, what it seems yeah. like is, is happening and what's actually according to this film happening. So don't be put off by the subject matter at all. If, if you're interested in a kind of like Spielberg, Hanks, Streep, collab because you'll still get what you want out of it i'm not sure they've ever actually all worked together before ah, well there you go. i think this is the first time which is interesting because you obviously you you would assume that they have being you know hollywood people of su- a certain stature and so on but yeah i think it's their first time all three together and in various interviews and stuff steven spielberg has made a big deal of the fact that he dropped everything when he got this script to make this film because he, he felt like it was hugely urgent in today's political climate and so on to mm. tell a story about how power was held to account by a non-fake news media, etc. Yeah, I think he's in the middle of like post-production for Ready Player One, which is this huge like sci-fi thing coming late. I think it's coming later this year. Right. But he like redid the whole schedule so that he could make this film in a really short amount of time. I have slight impatience with that as a narrative. Don't really care about Steven Spielberg's like work schedule <laughs> Fair. yeah it's quite hard to care about that i also find that whole thing as like in a time of fake news let us look back to a time when journalism was pure annoying right because i, I do too i think it's really I, reductive and not fair i tried to have a conversation with a couple of people about this after the film and no one seemed to agree with me and i don't know whether it's because like essentially i'm quite maybe reductive in my own view of how the current journalism versus power situation is working but i've seen so many comments about this film as being timely and how it's like so Mm. timely that all these journalists were standing up to the president and blah 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 i didn't find it timely at all i found it absolutely terminally nostalgic and so like looking back incredibly so like this golden age of journalism which is just like that's not true and this kind of the, the the figure of the journalist is this kind of like desperate to expose um, the injustice of the it's it's almost self-aggrandizing. I know Steven Spielberg is not a journalist, but mm. tonally, I didn't find it a film that was trying in any way to kind of interrogate the reality of this of how this story unfolded. Instead, I found it one that was very interested in kind of that that underdog story all like touching all the cliches involved in a kind of underdog story of one man's search to expose the truth and yeah i also feel like the current journalistic situation doesn't really map on to the nixon presidency in a in a useful way i think we have different problems with how the media works and how and narratives that are controlled that are so different from oh well the president said this so that's what the general public knows to be true instead we have a situation where like the entire american population seem to know that their president has like grabbed women by the pussy or whatever and like nobody cares (laughs) which is a totally different problem yeah absolutely so for me it doesn't like it doesn't quite function as this kind of quote timely look at how journalism and power can how journalism can work to expose the the abuses of power in a presidency because it's just not quite the same (laughs) Mm. 
Yeah, no, I totally agree. I felt the same. I have to say I enjoyed some of its nostalgic content. For instance, all the focus on like the mechanics of how a newspaper gets made. I really enjoyed, partly because, you know, that's my job, etc. Printing press like, montage. Printing press montage. <laughs> love a printing press montage. Yeah. Also, absolutely loved the moment when after they've been through hell to get hold of these papers and they've like had to look through 4,000 papers in eight hours and write a story in and the story is finally done and it's delivered to the chief sub and he's got like 20 minutes to go through it before it has to be printed and the first thing he does is cross out out the first sentence sentence. yeah that's a really funny joke for subs that's a really funny (laughs) joke for subs because that's literally what they always do I like that too I found some things absolutely tonally bizarre in this movie the the weird Richard Nixon puppet they seem animatronic <laughs> they seem to have absolutely weird yes. every now and then there's a shot of Richard Nixon and he's always got his back to a window in the Oval mm. Office or something and he's like so you can't see his face and he's like gesticulating wildly but he looks like he's you know from the Rainforest Cafe in London like one of those weird elephants <laughs> that just moves so weirdly <laughs> and the end is like a very sort of weird it feels to me like you know at the end of like Superman one or like spider-man one or whatever they're always like ah and the villains were locked up away for another day and then they like emerge like oh they've broken out Mm. of jail and it's like the setup for the sequel in this they end with it being like well there could never be another scandal like this and then they like almost shot for shot do the opening scenes of all the president's men which is obviously about the watergate scandal (laughs) that breaks a few years later and it's a really weird like setup for the sequel but the sequel's already been made in 1974 and it's all the president's men it's just like so (laughs) weird it doesn't make sense to me but yeah what you're saying about the nostalgic like emphasis on materials i kind of like that but then there's something about it to me that almost suggests like oh people would spotlight did this as well like Mm. emphasizing the amount of work they had to do that was analog rather than digital as though it means that it's more difficult and more noble work which i find a bit like weirdly like regressive <laughs> as a as a thought to have to be like well these people had to go through the phone book yeah whereas anyone who has actually worked on like i know a guy who's in the investigations team at the guardian who has worked on like the panama papers and stuff like that anyone who's had to like rip data out of pdfs mm. will tell you that just as boring it's probably <laughs> easy it's probably it's probably easier to go through the phone book yeah. than it is to like try and get a 13,000 page PDF into a spreadsheet that you can search. Yeah. You know? (laughs) I did watch um, All the President's Men in advance Mm. of seeing this because I thought I should. And I have to say... It's an incredible movie. If any anyone who hasn't seen all, I, mean, I haven't seen it. I really want to. I know. I mean, I'm like here with dispatches from 1974. Like you should check out a little known movie called All the President's <laughs> Men, starring you know. But it's it's really really good, and it does have an intense focus on like the materials of journalism. It opens with like June 1972 being like punched into a typewriter, but it's like the sounds of like gunshots and stuff mm. with the keys. So it's already this like. Apparently, the director was really interested in this idea of tiny things making a big difference. So there's loads of like, you can hear all the sounds of people writing with pencils and it's turned up to the sound like really, really loud, Mm. things like that. But it's just really good. It was obsessed with realism. Like they rebuilt the Washington Post offices and like had replicas made of old phone books and all kinds of shit to try and make it so, so authentic. And there's a lot of quite boring chat about like journalism in there where they're like arguing Mm. about like, 
how far up the story the info about who who a certain government agent is has to be and there's lots of shots of them like arguing over whether they've actually got correct notes and things like that but it somehow is more exciting than the post and just Mm. just much better so if you if you kind of liked the post please go and watch all the president's men if you haven't already because it's it's really really good and i think kind of what spielberg would have liked to have done but is just so you know terminally cheesy that he couldn't quite couldn't quite stop himself from instead having them kind of like stand over printing presses going ah the news it just goes on doesn't it yeah Mm, the news (laughs) yeah and even stuff like you know, he tried to tease out something with the fact that, you know, Meryl Streep plays Catherine Graham, who's the newspaper's publisher. And, you know, she is the publisher and every single other person involved in the business side of the paper is a man. Mm. And she has to like enter all of these all male rooms and be like, actually, no, listen to me. I know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Which she's really hesitant about and not really sure about. And she kind of grows in confidence through the film. And then spoiler it's history but spoiler it's up to her to make the final decision at the end like should they publish the papers or not yeah. even though it's probably a crime and she overrules all of these men and says no we should do it those were the bits that worked the best for me i have to say yeah, the kind of like feminist definitely. parts of the narrative that were like look at this because in all the president's men she's the, she's still the publisher of the washington post at that time there's only one line that references her and it's a quote where someone said oh i can't remember but it references her tits and that's the only reference uh. to her. And because it, it was apparently something someone actually said about her. They were like, oh, we're going to get her tits in a vice if she if she tries to publish this um, or something along those lines. And you're like, wow, the difference here is astounding to the, you know this throwaway mm. woman who's literally reduced to her breasts by these men. And then in this later film, obviously, she's she's totally rewritten as the hero of the narrative, which is which is wonderful and those mansplainy office scenes really did work where you could see her kind of freezing up and you were desperate you wanted to hit her over the head to be more commanding yeah that was a good aspect of it also i and i think quite a lot of people on the internet i've seen a few pieces about this love the caftan that she wears towards the end (laughs) of the film yeah meryl's just like floating around in a gorgeous silk caftan you know defending free speech yeah it's it's yeah, that's pretty I'm good. obsessed with the journalist look, which is the same in like all mm. movies like Spotlight, State of Play, Zodiac, The Post, All the President's Men. It's all like b- men in blue shirts and khaki cords <laughs> and like everything. And a bit rumpled. Yeah, everything's creased. Like, everything's no, t- yeah. no top buttons, all sleeves rolled up. Everything looks like it's aged horribly, like slightly yellowing. And I think it is that 70s All the President's Men vibe again that's, mm. the, that's to it, blame. But I do love it. It reminds me of when I first moved to London and I got my first horrible flat. We had a housewarming party and because everyone I knew was like me 21 and unemployed we made the theme for fancy dress like dress as the job you want (laughs) dress for the job you want and me and a couple of my friends who were also trying to be journalists came in the journalist look that's so funny (laughs) like press Um, in your hat (laughs) yes (laughs) love it (laughs) 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So the next thing that we're going to talk about this week is Search Party, a dark comedy TV series starring Aaliyah Shawkat as Dory Seif, a New York millennial who in the first series started her own investigation into a missing acquaintance, which then spiralled out of control. Spoiler alert if you haven't seen the first season. I'm not going to go any further if you haven't. Just go and see it. Turn off seriously. Go and watch the first season. Come back later. In the second series, she and her three friends find themselves trying to cover up a murder as well as trying to return to their normal lives. I think we should say up front, I think we have to go full spoiler for this. I don't think we can really talk about it properly without because it's so plot driven no so yeah you have to turn it off now and go and watch it if you care otherwise we will not be held responsible for you finding out what happens yeah so go go and watch those seasons because they're amazing so season two of search party when season one of search party ended i was like how can they carry on with this show because the Mm. twist in the final episode of the first series is that the girl that they've been looking for actually none of the their kind of like crazy theories about what happened to her were true she just kind of like got fed up of her entitled millennial life and like disappeared of her own accord and all the other yeah, clues, she's not lost or missing no all the other clues are just red herrings but you've been so invested in it that you really believed everything that they believed so it's a great way to like pull the rug out from under the audience and then it's like great okay well now where do we go from here because they can't recreate that So instead, what they do is they go in this weird, dark, paranoia, Hitchcock direction and they Mm. make it all about how they can possibly get away with the fact that they killed someone at the end of the first season, which 
having re I rewatched the mur- the murder scene. Oh, did you? Okay. Yeah, I went after the second season. I thought, well, I've got to rewatch this actual murder that sparks the whole season. To me, it looks very much like self defense. But the problem is, yeah. not that they not that they did it, but then that they didn't call the police immediately afterwards. That's that's the big mistake that sets everything going wrong after that. And it's clever writing in the sense that I think probably the primary reason why they didn't call the police straight away to say like, this guy attacked us, we hit him back Mm. in self-defense and now he's died. What should we do? We want to report it straight away and be responsible citizens, blah, blah, blah. Because because Chantel wasn't actually missing, they don't have a good explanation for why they're in the situation in the first place. So they're sort of trapped by the fact that they went on this weird red herring investigation. But, everyone, but the whole world thinks this girl is missing. It's not just them. Yeah. So I think it's fine that they were like, we thought she was here, we came to find her. Mm. Um, and this guy followed us. Basically, I think the problem with... So the Keith character is basically some guy who's also been looking into the disappearance of this girl alongside Dory, Aaliyah Shawcat, and her friends. And he's not... There's nothing threatening about him, but because... Dory has got it in her head that there's some weird conspiracy going on. She's like projecting all her fears about the situation yeah. onto him when he's not actually a threat. But leaving all that beside, he is obsessed with Dory. He think he's known her for a very small amount of time and he's in love with her. And she's alone with him in a house and he's saying, but I love you, Dory, I love you. And is grabbing her. I'm sorry, in that situation, a girl sometimes yeah. has to hit someone back, like for, regardless of the whole missing person. Like, He's weird. He's he's obsessed with her in a way that is not normal, and that's kind of scary to for any. And he's much biz, bigger physically than her, so I can totally see why the violent episode happens. The problem is, then all yeah. all four of them are kind of like, "What do we do? What do we do?" And Elliot, a fantastic character played absolutely amazingly by the comedian John Early, is like, "I don't think we should call the police. This looks really bad. Was it actually self defense?" And then so mm. they don't. Um, but the whole series then becomes this weird kind of paranoid exploration of for these four people, A, trying to get away with it. But the problem really is not that they are likely to get caught. It's that they actually can't cope emotionally with what they've done. Yeah. And, that's, and they all unravel psychologically as a result, don't they? Yeah. In different ways. Exactly. And I think that's so clever because you spend the first two or three episodes thinking like, how are they going to dispose of the body? Uh, how are they going to get back into the US without it looking suspicious? How are they going to make sure that no one, his family don't find him? What are they going to do about the fact that he's got a daughter? Like All these kind of like practical things. And then suddenly you're like, hang on, how are they just going to hold it together? Because they just can't, yeah. they can't hold it together. And um, it invites you, I think, a lot of the time, this second series, much more than the first series, to be like, shit, what would I do in this situation? Um, And I found myself really empathizing, although they're, you know, they're not behaving how good people, quote, should behave, which is a big a big Mm. theme of the whole series is like, are they good people, bad people or somewhere in between? And even though they're doing all these things that like really you'd think uh, if you heard about it in a in a news story you'd be like well these are awful people they didn't call the police they disposed of the body they lied to his four-year-old daughter or whatever and instead of hating them i was like empathizing with them the whole time and thinking shit shit i've been in this situation and of course i haven't but that panic and that paranoia to me is so relatable that i immediately connected with all of them and felt like so anxious for them the entire time yeah i know what you mean it goes beyond the i feel like lots of thriller type things manage to make you 
root for the people who've done the bad thing like that that's a fairly common trope Mm. but what this goes a step further and actually makes you like properly empathize and put yourself in their place because yeah I've never killed someone and tried to hide it but I have been in complete emotional turmoil and had to hide it from everybody Mm. and pretend like everything's fine so that I found that extremely relatable and I think part of it is these which is something they touched on in the first season is all of these people live on social media there's a lot of like instagram and stuff coming into it and twitter and and particularly the john early character elliot he's got like a book deal and the porsche character um is an actress so they want to be famous people with reputations they want want to be seen and known. Yeah, yeah and a lot of what their what their fear is related to the fact that everyone will know that they are not who they say they are. And I think that is such a relatable fear, the idea of like, I'm going to be exposed, like that almost imposter syndrome, like my friends like me, but they don't don't realise that I'm lying to them all the time because I'm such a bad Mm. person and they just don't realise, they don't know what I'm thinking, they don't know, I don't know, like, or people think I'm good at my job, but they don't know that I'm just like faking it and I'm trying to like coast and do as little as possible and they think that I'm good and I'm not good like all those kinds of feelings are basically what's coming through for a lot of these characters the John Early character at the beginning is so super calm and is so like let's not call the police we can just dispose of the body let's just bury it like he's the kind of like architect of the whole situation and then he has an incredible downfall sort of around episode Mm. six where he just has like a psychotic break and there's this amazing scene where he's just like screaming like i can't live with (laughs) myself i've done so much terrible shit i'm such a i can't live like this and it is it felt so relatable to me that kind of like when i feel really really low i'll just be like oh my god i actually can't live like this and be this person and although it's all so much more extreme than anything i've ever felt it's just I think it's just brilliantly done because they you you for me you just automatically put yourself in their shoes and not anyone else's even though everyone else is probably the good guy and there's this character mm. of Julian who's very moral and knows that he's a good person and really believes that he's a good person and all the other characters hate him and I hate him too and it's like do I hate him because he's annoying or do I hate him because he's just like reminding me that I'm not good why do I hate this character yeah. so much um so yeah, it's really it's a really interesting way of playing with with morality, I think. Yeah, I found the Drew storyline really interesting for that as well because I feel like through all the first series, Drew was more of a spectator than a and a, like a reluctant participant because he, you know he was Dory's boyfriend and he was very much being like, "I'm worried about you. I'm worried that this is kind mm-hmm. of a proxy for other stuff that you're worried about. And um, maybe you should take a step back from your quote investigation." Blah blah blah. And then obviously he is fully implicated because he, to try and help Dory, like actually hits the guy over the head. Mm. So he's like fully involved. And then he just loses all sense of perspective and he gets into his head that he needs to leave the country, but he needs to leave the country in like a non-suspicious way. And the best he can come up with is he needs his work to like post him somewhere. And there's a job opportunity come up in China. There's a guy in his office who's obviously a shoe in for the job. And he starts plotting. And he's actually really nice and friendly to him. But he starts plotting his downfall in order that he can get this job instead. And he just does terrible, terrible things to this completely innocent co-worker. Yeah. Just because he's convinced that once he gets to China, everything will be fine and nothing will ever harm him again. It's this needly specific 
screwball plot right like there's no yeah. there's so many different ways he could go about it in a non-specific way but instead he gets obsessed with that one route mm. which is bizarre yeah and i really like the porsche storyline as well where she joins uh she's doing a play that it's uh like the manson murders <laughs> and she gets swept up in a cult basic not a really not a real cult there's a cult in the first season but she basically because i don't know whether he's like trying to do a method acting thing on her but he she get the director of the play is this absolutely kind of psychotic charming manipulator and she just falls right into his hands so if they did do a third mm. season i would love to see more of that plot line because i thought it was really clever so that was really something i wanted to discuss which is that i think they definitely could do a third season yeah i think it would be very very it wouldn't feel forced or tacked on or anything because of the way this ends like it doesn't answer all of your questions what, by any means. I wanted to talk to you about the ending. What do you what do you make of the ending? There's this moment basically where this is hugely spoilerific, so please don't listen if you haven't seen it. But um there ends up a confrontation between Dory and this woman who knows everything about them and is threatening to go to the police on a ferry. And there's a moment where you're the Saturn Island ferry, yeah, yeah. And there's a moment where you're like, is she gonna push her off the ferry? Is she gonna murder this person just to get away with what she's done? And it's kind of a dreamlike sequence. It's all quite like red and dark and weird. And then she and she's wearing the same dress that she's been wearing in one of her nightmares in a previous episode. Yeah. And then she, which is suspicious, is very weird. Yeah, I'm like, mm, is this meant to be a dream or not? But anyway, then she goes to leave, and you're like, phew, she's not going to do it. Please don't do it, Dory. Please don't kill this person. And then she just runs back and kills her. And it's like. This whole time you've been in this tension between whether this character is good or not good. And it just goes so far in the like unnecessarily bad direction. I mean, it's a very claustrophobic situation in that this person is like, I will make your life hell. I will make sure you never, ever get to live another day without what you've done hanging over you. And I'm going to tell everyone and it doesn't matter where you are or where you go, I will be there. So she's very much framed it as a like impossible to get out of situation only mm. giving her the way out of like pushing her off but i really had faith that dory was a good enough person good enough even though she's been like terrible in lots of ways to not do that and so i was kind of disappointed and frustrated in the way that the narrative went obviously that's exactly what the writers intended but i was sad that she did it but i guess there is this question mark over whether it was real or not but i do think i think it was <laughs> i th i think it was too although there are you can make a case for it not being one being the fact that in a previous episode they use that fairly hackneyed trick of is when Dory's at a really low ebb and she's standing on top of a roof and you just see her like jump off she just steps off and then immediately it cuts back like five seconds and she's standing on the roof again and she like and you realize that what you've seen is her visualizing mm -hmm. rather than it actually happening and she like jumps back and she's horrified mm -hmm. and so they could definitely use that trick again mm -hmm. So Dory was like imagining, oh, how wouldn't it just solve all my problems if I just pushed her off this ferry? Mm. But obviously I'm not going to do that. So there is that. Also the fact that she's wearing the same dress that she's wearing in her like waking nightmare mm. um, in a previous episode kind of leaves that possibility open. That is that just how she looks in her own fantasies rather than like in real life? But I'm not really persuaded by either of those theories. I think that, yeah, she did do it. I think that, that the evidence for that is then the scene after she's kind of very, very shaken, goes back to her place of work. Yeah. And that's where she's actually arrested for the first murder. So it seems like 
too much then post that takes place in the real world that seems to be following directly on from those actions for it to have been a dream sequence like if it mm. if the if the roof jumping off scene had been followed by like her body being carted off we'd know it was real uh, yeah exactly yeah way. i also wanted to talk about this this obviously because this is a this is a more about the crime that's been committed this season there's a subplot involving the detective working on their case mm. and she, they try and throw her off the scent with this fake character called Fat Frankie, who's like a gangster. And then she ends up finding someone called Fat Frankie and shooting and killing Fat Frankie in a way that's very reminiscent of them accidentally killing Keith. Yeah. And so she's going through all the same things that they they were going through, like, but a slightly delayed pace. And it felt really interesting to me the way that they were like calling those um parallels between the you know kind of like the chased and the chaser and the villain and the heroes or however you want to put mm. it um and so that makes me wonder where they're gonna go if they do do a second a third season where they might go with the detective working on their case and them um and whether because in a way it would be much more convenient for the detective working on the case if fat frankie had killed uh, had if Frankie had kidnapped um Chantal because then she could have she could have a good reason for killing him but if Dory and all her friends did it then an innocent man has died for absolutely no reason <laughs> yeah that leaves a really interesting sort of avenue open to them I think that and I sort of had to remember this after my initial shock of like oh my god Dory's been arrested when I finished watching it I was like yeah but arrested is not charged mm. arrest you know there's there's lots of options that that before that they actually just lock her up and they sort of have to end the series i did also have a brief thought i know this is bad but how great would would it be if they could somehow around arrange to cross over with orange is the new black <laughs> so if dory goes to prison alia shawkat appears in orange is the new black that's a mental fantasy but i just want more alia shawkat and everything so i think she's great yep. and i think one thing this this is such a heavily plotted show it's easy to just um bypass in talking about theories and characters and so on mm. just how funny it is it's yeah. so funny like i've i've watched loads of the episodes twice because this is just one of my favorite things i've seen in god knows how long it's so funny john early is absolutely magnificent and comic in his performance uh meredith haggerty or uh, i think that's her name as portia is just so so funny as well and they're both vulnerable enough that you just love them and so i want to see i want Mm. to see more of these characters even though they're absolute jokes like they're so silly and the, the dialogue is so funny there's a scene um there's a scene in this series where john early's got a book deal and he's like going slightly crazy with the pressure of having to write the book. And then he like calls a meeting with his publisher and he's like, I've realized I just don't like to work. And they're all like, yeah, that was an amazing scene. <laughs> yeah, but, but we have to work. And he's like, mm, no, I don't think you're listening. Like, I really don't like working. And so I'm just not going to do it. Like, just don't want to work. <laughs> And I just, I was like, oh my God, I relate to this so hard and it's so stupid and so funny um, and just so well acted. I I love it. It's just, so if you, if, I mean, if, if you're listening to this, presumably you have seen all of Search Party, but we do just have to say how funny it is as well. So last week we decided we were going to watch She's Gotta Have It, which is a Netflix uh, Spike Lee TV series kind of 
based off, remade, adapted from uh, the film of the same title that was uh, made in the 80s. Is that right? 1986. 1986, which I haven't seen and would now actually be very interested to see. But it follows this uh, woman, Nola Darling, who's an artist and it, it follows her life in Brooklyn, her work, her sex life and her friends. Um, and it's very singular in kind of tone, I would say, and style. Yeah, I haven't seen the original film either and also really want to. I've been trying to read about it just to get a sense of where this TV series has come from. And there are a few things I've gleaned from my readings. One is that the original film has a really controversial rape scene in it. Oh, right, well. That at the time was criticised by bell hooks and basically everybody. <laughs> because apparently it's a very like throwback almost 70s she says no at the beginning but then she ends up liking it type scene which a lot of people felt kind of poisoned the film because that's not generally the message that nola's like sex positive polyamorous character Mm -hmm. is supposed to be sending and spike lee has actually said he really regrets including that scene Mm. hence why there's nothing like that in the um in this remake um, and then the other main thing that I've sort of gleaned, like I went back and read the original New York Times pieces about it and stuff, that it was just totally revolutionary when it mm. first came out. You know, the idea that Spike Lee had made a black and white film that was pretty much all about middle class black people mm. who only interact with each other, really. Mm. There's pretty much no white characters in it at all, mm. um, was really revolutionary. and that's slightly harder to see now because stuff like blackish and insecure and so on Mm -hmm. have very much like picked up the gauntlet there but yeah i i think that's worth bearing in mind that it it really broke ground the first time around totally and i still think um there's something very unusual about this show now you're i do think still we see a lot of tv shows about like black america are are like oh look at the problems of poverty and the problems of Mm. violence and it's not like there are definitely a lot less portrayals of of middle class black americans um i really liked uh no i'm gonna say when i first started watching it i was like oh no this is going to be really cringe because i couldn't really deal with like the hashtags and the and the stuff to camera either the, the, especially at the beginning because it's very like jarring to go straight into something and it's just the first I think maybe 10 minutes of this are, are, re- are really on that breaking the fourth wall like delivered monologues to camera um, thing where it's like Nola in- sort of introducing herself for quite a long slow tracked um, scene where she's like sat on her bed then we get we see flashes of, of the three men she's dating and done in a similar style where they're like kind of selling themselves to the camera t- telling them about you, of themselves um, there are some really like so, some of that felt really cartoonish like is his name Mars Blackman yeah uh, one of the guys she's dating felt so like a cartoon like coming at you with this massive necklace and like all these bright colors on his like bike and i was like wait what is this i can't really like totally place it and then yeah all these kind of like hashtags every character is introduced with a hashtag of their name and there's like the the episode title is a hashtag um and just some really weird things like when they play a song they like show you the album artwork the album for, cover, for the yeah. song um and i was like i don't know what this is doing but then i but i love the dialogue and i re- i really like this the more traditional scenes 
um, which is maybe a, a boring thing to say, but I really like the way that the characters interact with each other. And I like how, how much they're allowed to be nuanced and how it's like, cause I think every character is introduced in a slightly cartoonish, like this is me and this is what I'm about way. Yeah, um, which I don't love. And then once you actually see them in conversation with one another, they they're much more nuanced than that, and they're allowed to be a, a lot kind of more individual than that. And so I really like, especially Nola's conversations with her female friends because they're all quite different, but they all have quite a lot in common. And the the way that they talk with each other is interesting as they try and get across their own points of view and stuff. So I really I really like those scenes. Yeah, I felt similarly that I, I watched two episodes and I stopped. I'm confirmed in this opinion. And I, I'm not even sure I want to watch that much more of it because I find the the stylized elements of it quite exhausting. Mm. Um, but I, that's such a shame because I do like the like properly in, like not breaking the fourth wall mm. scenes. And I am really interested in the character of Nola. Mm. But... I don't know if I can get over the kind of um, the trappings that go with it. Yeah. Uh, and I find it interesting how I I went and read a load of reviews because I couldn't work out whether I was like overreacting or whether maybe that's just part of Spike Lee's thing mm. and he's trying to, you know, make, make fun of modernity or something. Mm. But I don't think he is because like, I found all of the mm, – pretty much all of the major American publication reviews I read, like New York Times and Atlantic and stuff like that, were all written by white people, mostly white men. And they were all like, this is so good. This is so amazing. Like it was an amazing film and now it's an amazing adaptation. And isn't mm. it so great to see the black experience central, put, you know, made central? All true. But then I found this piece on Mike by a black woman. And she said... So yes, She's Gotta Have It gets the 2010s update, but the series is largely a boring rehash of the original with a few added plot lines to make the whole thing feel timely for today's young audiences. Mm. It's like, no, that's how I feel about it. Mm. I feel like he just put hashtag Black Lives Matter on screen at the end of the first episode because he's heard that's an important thing. I think It did feel slightly like a, an, an older person's attempt to make mm. something very hip at times. But I, I'm there's something in there for me that I'm like, uh, it would yeah, be a shame to not on it. to not carry on watching it because it's not. I liked the conversational elements of it. I like, for example, the scene where they're all sat talking about whether it's objectifying or not to change your body, and yeah. like, for example, if you wanted, I don't know, lip fillers or a bigger bum or whatever. And although sometimes, sometimes when you read dialogue like that, that feels self-consciously like it's trying to engage too much with um like identity politics or whatever it can feel really forced but there was something about the fact that it had characters with extremely differing views on it just kind of like in conversation rather than two women being like yeah this is the feminist thing to say and we're both feminists and we're both going to say it i liked that instead of that it was just like it felt more like the actual conversations people i know have where they're like mm. maybe getting a little over invested in the conversation because of their own insecurities and feeling offended by what people are saying or like feeling really outraged that someone's not agreeing with them but but coming at it from totally different angles um so i liked i really liked that scene and some some other scenes as well so i it would be a shame i feel like i might persist with it because i don't want to i don't want to be too put off by some of this the stylized stuff but yeah a mixed bag yeah definitely a mixed bag so what are we going to do next time? 
we won't have a recommend next week because we're doing book club so this is for the week after yeah so we had a listener email um that really intrigued both of us i think you have it yeah so it's from elisa eliza sorry if i'm saying your name wrong and they've written in and referencing our discussion of McMafia from a couple of weeks ago about the you know the thing we talked about with it being a kind of multilingual multinational production with actors from different countries actually playing the countries they're from mm. and they say um i was wondering therefore if you'd considered watching Craith slash hidden on s4c slash bbc wales the welsh version is available with subtitles and an english version is coming soon i watched the first episode in welsh the first seed made me worried that it would be overwritten but the ridiculous first line seemed to get that instinct out of the show's system it's only s4c slash bbc wales second attempt at bilingual drama production and i'd be really interested to know what you and others think so I was really intrigued by that because I think we're quite familiar with the idea of bilingual drama from other countries altogether, like, you know, uh, Denmark, Sweden with the bridge and that kind of thing. Totally. But the idea that, say, England and Wales could do one yeah. <laughs> is a bit newer. And yeah, that'd be really, I'm really interested to try it. Yeah, same. I think that sounds like such a great idea. And I guess it just depends how well it's executed. So we'll have to tune in and see. Incidentally, I really hope I said the title of it right. But if I didn't, it's C-R-A-I-T-H. Yeah, I am um, no good at Welsh pronunciation. <laughs> so I'm sure someone will email in and explain. But yes, can't wait for this. Thanks for listening to this episode of Seriously, the pop culture podcast from the New Statesman. If you enjoyed the show, why not subscribe to make sure you never miss another episode? We're available in all the usual places you get podcasts, including on Apple Podcasts, where you could leave us a rating and a review if you fancy. It makes us happy and it also helps other people find the show. If you'd like to come and see us in person, check out the events page of our website, seriouslypod.com slash events. Details of our next pop culture quiz and anything else we're doing will appear there. We're available many other places on the internet, including on Twitter, Facebook and Tumblr. We're Seriously Pod on all of them. Follow us to keep up with what we're up to or to chat to other listeners about things you've enjoyed on the show. We love getting your recommendations for things we should feature on the show or hearing your thoughts on what we've already discussed. Get in touch on social media or email us on seriouslypod at gmail.com. And if you feel strongly that more pop culture needs to be taken seriously, spread the word and tell your friends and family about the podcast. The girl was found 76 hours after she was reported missing. The fingertips had been removed with cable cutter pliers, a calculated attempt to hide DNA evidence. The flesh of her attacker gathering beneath the whites of her nails as they dragged over his skin. Her body had been moved shortly after death. Wherever she was killed had been private enough for a prolonged and violent attack, followed by the mutilation of her corpse. Holly Michaels was dumped in the dark water of the bayou in the northernmost part of Red River County, Florida, ten miles from her home. In the photos of the crime scene she was lying face down. This made it slightly easier to stomach the first time Sam studied them, alone, in the unlit living room of her terrace house in Bristol. At first, the photo seemed indecent, not so much because of the gore, the blood matted into fine blonde hair, but the sight of Holly naked from the waist down. Sam wanted to lay a blanket across her to protect her modesty. Over time, she stopped flinching at the sight of her. The more she browsed the forums and saw it again and again, it became less about the body, the waxy pale skin and dark patches of blood, and more about the details around her. 
Now her eyes focused on the edges of the picture, the patch of ground circled with a red line. Sam squinted. It was a footprint. But as the forum members discussed, there were no casts of footprints taken or discussed anywhere in the files surrounding the case. The question started, was this footprint purposely omitted during the investigation? Overlooked? Or are we looking at evidence of some club-footed Red River police officer who potentially disturbed the crime scene? They debated late into the night, Sam unsure what to believe except for one thing, that whatever had happened, it left the real killer free. Her obsession started 18 years after the first documentary. Seriously, I know it's not your type of thing, but you'll love it. It's unbelievable. It'll make you so angry, her boyfriend Mark had said, his face lit up by the glow of the monitor. Sam was sitting next to him in his bed, in the house he still shared with his parents. As the story unfolded on screen, everything else started to fade away. At the heart of it, the boy, too young for the suit he wore in court, blue eyes blinking confused at the camera, alone and afraid. It hurt her to look at him, beautiful in an ugly room, harsh light and severe edges, his own face so soft with sadness. Dennis Danson, barely 18 years old, alone on death row. After the film ended, she wanted more. She wanted answers. I told you, Mark said. I told you it'd make you furious. Soon, Dennis occupied her waking thoughts and lingered on the edges of her dreams, always too far away to speak to or hold, his fingers slipping from hers. So she joined online groups, a dedicated fandom that poured over every photograph, witness statement, court transcript, coroner report and alibi. They debated minute details until Sam felt exhausted but unable to stop, digging for a truth that could right all the wrongs that had led to this point. There were subgroups who passionately defended their theories. They suspected Holly's stepfather or the sex offenders who lived in trailer parks on the outskirts of town. They drew comparisons with other unsolved murders across America, which conjured an image of a transient evil, a trucker fueled by dark fantasies, a man who lived by night and killed alone. Then there were the conspiracy theorists, those who thought the whole Red River police force were covering for a ring of local paedophiles who had some kind of hold on them. Sam believed it was simpler than that. A week before the murder, a short man had been reported outside the middle school. He'd been stopping the children as they walked past, asking them for the time. He said he'd lost his watch and asked if they would help him look for it, with a promise of a reward. A mother who was picking up her boys approached him, telling the police later that he had made her suspicious, that he had been acting cagey, his eyes darting as he spoke. He was unknown in the relatively small community and had fled the scene before the police arrived. The man's presence had left the parents feeling uncomfortable, and teachers patrolled the school gates each morning and afternoon as an added precaution. With very little to go on, the police filed the incident and put it to the back of their minds. No crime had been committed, and the man didn't return to the school. A week later, Holly was reported missing. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.